Have you noticed how much traction the rewilding movement has gained in recent years? What used to be an unfamiliar term, rewilding is growing into a global phenomenon and it has certainly taken over the European continent for the better. Welcome back friends to Rewildology, the nature podcast that explores the human side of conservation, travel, and rewilding the planet. I'm your host, Brooke Mitchell, conservation biologist and adventure traveler. Today, you and I are going to have a master class on the concept of rewilding with Pedro Prada, the man who is leading the charge in Portugal. As the team leader of rewilding Portugal, Pedro is at the forefront of restoring landscapes, protecting wildlife, and combating the top threats to Portugal's wildlands, particularly in the Coa Valley. In this episode, we'll journey through Pedro's experiences from the early days of his connection with nature to the innovative work he's leading today. We'll uncover the challenges and triumphs of rewilding in Portugal and delve into topics like carnival restoration, you know, one of my favorites of all time, water conservation, and the integration of nature tourism into the Coa Valley. So whether you're a seasoned conservationist or simply someone who loves the outdoors, get ready to be inspired and informed. Join me as I explore the wild side of Portugal and the incredible story of Pedro Prada, a man dedicated to the preservation of our planet's natural wonders. Well, hi, Pedro. Thank you so much for sitting down with me on the other side of the world. I'm always so happy to tune in with people from everywhere across the globe. And you are representing a new country for the show, which is even more exciting. So before we get to the amazing work that you have been pioneering and leading the charge on, could you tell me about the early days? What inspired you to take a path into conservation and restoration work? Yeah, well, thanks for inviting me. It's uh, it's great to be here, uh, a fan of the podcast. So uh, it's a pleasure, real pleasure to share also my experience and uh, my knowledge around this uh, landscape. Portugal It's not such a well-known country around the world, but a small country in Europe at the, at the edge of Iberia. So um, it's interesting for all those reasons too. I grew up close to the mountains, the highest mountains in the country. Uh, in a farm uh, setting, so I live in the countryside, and I grew up surrounded by nature, and, and and the natural world always interested me. In my early days as a kid, I used to watch all these nature and by the, and wildlife uh, documentaries. So all of those uh, influences I grew up with, and as it matured and developed during my my growing up, I became more and more interested in bi- in biology. And uh, I went to college to to learn about it, to train myself in uh, as a biologist. And and my early interest in, in in biology was actually evolution, the process of evolution. It's uh, fascinating, and that's what sparked my imagination uh, back in the days of college. And I've uh, researched uh, and, and trained mostly in evolution-related matters all the way to my first uh, master's program that was ecology and evolution and uh, by doing once you got into the job of uh, researching uh, evolution 
at the same time that was combined with a significant part of uh, ecology research put together, I kind of realized that the the fundamental idea on, on what evolution is is quite interesting, but for a human experience on this planet, it's quite limited to actually do something about it. They actually can't do anything about it. It's just a process that goes, and it's marvelous to see it happening. It's marvelous to know the history of the planet and the and its life forms, but there's really very little you can add to it. So on the same time as I was doing that, my research also touched the, the, the ecology part, which is a different process. It's a more immediate process. It's a process that you can actually see developed before your eyes and you can interact to improve it. And that started to, I started to realize that that could be one of the, my, my, uh, dedication as a human being on this planet is to learn more about uh, this process and how to help it to restore and to and to and go further. And uh, so on top of that, I've um, I've decided to take a second master, and the second master was conservation biology, just because the experience that I had uh, lead me to to that. So uh, I was researching coral reef recovery, both on the ecological recovery and the evolution impact of that recovery and what i realized during my 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 research is that on evolution impact of that specific group of uh, of beings of life forms there's pretty nothing else uh, changing but at the ecology level it's pretty impressive how it was recovering from a natural phenomena uh, that uh, that led to its destruction and recolonization of a whole reef and and that was really interesting even if more compared when people are a variable in that equation too. So if people do some activities, they will amper this uh, recovery, but if they do a different kind, they can help it to, to restore. And that for me, it was a defining moment where I realized that it's a choice of how people interact with nature that can uh, lead to helping the development of recovery or actually destruction. So Having that in mind, I've started to, to, to get more and more interested about it. As I said, I, I did a second master on conservation biology, but I was also involved in many different projects around the world that were dealing with restoration of different habitats from, from the, in the Amazon to the, to the Northwest Pacific in, in the U.S., uh, Caribbean, and uh, many different habitats and, and biomes around the Americas. I was involved in, in, the, in the actual practice of restoration, and that uh, was the early days of my career as a conservation biologist. And what are some of those things that you learned going abroad? What were, I guess, some of the big takeaways that you had in all of these different restoration projects? I mean, wow, the Caribbean, the Pacific Northwest, like you were everywhere. What are some of the big things that you learned that you brought back with you? So one of the things that that impact me the most is the different perception that we have from Europe regarding what nature restoration is. So I have a classical training on, on on nature restoration, and Europe is a very old country, so it has these old ideas, and it takes a long time to change those ideas. Uh, and um, restoration, conservation, wildlife protection was always seen the same way. People have to do everything to make sure that the species or habitats are uh, stable and don't change, and that's the main classical idea, which for me was impactful to see in, in the Americas and the new world, uh, how this is not applied as such there. 
So space for nature, time for nature, evolving processes, catastrophes and dynamic of those of those uh, uh, events are accepted and are part of the restoration uh, strategy. And that to me was quite disrupting to the way things were being done here in Europe um, regarding nature conservation. So I start to realize that there is a different way to do things, which to me in, personally felt more more natural, more more organic, more, you know, it's like something that I always felt, but I wasn't uh, aware of. So having that realization was kind of a change of mindset towards what I could do. And I was thinking back home, what, what, what is it possible to do back home in Europe, in, in Portugal, in the, in the, in the central mountains and the, in the canyons that surround the central mountains here where I, where I grew up that could be uh, uh, applied to let nature thrive. And that the, the idea of, of rewilding, of let nature uh, thrive, started to 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 be a concept that I was looking for. But it wasn't yet assumed in Europe that kind of strategy, that kind of uh, conceptualization of what nature restoration could be. So um, as I came back, I started to develop ideas on how to do that. I I, I joined as a an employee to a company that had as a, a business model to transform old old forest plantations into native forests. I worked there for a year. That gave me a good insight of what could be done in, in, in those kind of situations. At the same time, I started a company with a friend on habitat restoration. We were doing small habitat restoration projects for privates or municipalities. And they were all very limited in a way because of the, the, the scope, size, and, 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 and goals are, are, were uh, small. And in the meantime, there was this uh, upcoming of rewilding as an idea in, in Europe by the hand of Rewilding Europe, who had set out a call for landscapes around Europe to apply as a pilot, as pilots of rewilding within the European continent. And one of those early pilot areas, landscapes, was just next door to where I was uh, living. And as they were selected as one of the first five pilot areas for rewilding Europe. They, they open a call for a team leader for the rewilding project and also managing director for, for the organization to which I've applied and I was selected. So uh, back in 2014, uh, almost 10 years ago, I started my job at that organization as team leader for the, the, lands, the rewilding landscape of the Western Iberia area, which was a poorly defined area, but the concept was there. And as I joined, that was my task to define that, that, that specific work, what is the strategy, how to achieve it, how to set goals and then steps towards it and to define it as a, as a project, as a initiative for the future. And uh, since then, that's what I've been doing for the past 10 years, first in that one, NGO and now in rewilding Portugal as a leading pro uh, partner of the partnership that leads this uh, now greater Cuba Valley rewilding area. Oh, 
Yes. Let's get into that. Let's talk about rewilding Portugal. So you gave great history on the project and how it came to be. So, and you mentioned the Coa Valley. So what are the main projects that you're focused on? I know there's a lot. So maybe give us the, the top level. What are they? And then let's start diving into each of them and piecing them together and how they all come in, as to one thing of rewilding Portugal. Yeah. No, definitely. It's, uh, it's uh, a lot of layers. Uh, I, I, I prefer to call it layers uh, towards the same goal, of course. So the, the, first, we have to define what is the Greater Coa Valley. Uh, it's simple. It's uh, the, the catchment of the Coa River. So that means all the extension of the, the river, plus its tributaries and all the land that basically composed the basin, the catchment of the, the, the Coa River. And this is quite big. Uh, I'll use hectares as a as a, a measure. It's three hundred twenty thousand hectare big catchment. It's basically the region in between Guarda, the central mountain, the central mountain system in Portugal, towards the border with Spain. It's basically that whole region. So everything that rains past the central mountains will drain through the Coa into the Douro. Uh, which is the main river uh, where the, the, the Coa is a tributary. So all of that area has a very regional history first, human history, and uh, it has been marked as a, a, a passage, mostly a, 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 an area where humans and its activities have passed through. So the settlements here are, are more, if you look back in history on a, on a, on a grand perspective, more or less, unstable so they come they pop up and then they disappeared and so people staying and and doing their activities it's like it's a boom and bust so it starts and and, and goes away and that led always this region as a as a more or less wild region because every time there is a a spike in human uh, activity nature and processes are driven away or, or become suppressed at some point but then every time it goes down it they will come back immediately and we're now at this stage honestly if you look back at the social economic history of the region for the past century we're now in this decline slope of human activity and its impact on on on, on wildlife and that what's happening in nature and wildlife is coming back and so that was the the, the context where we're setting up to promote this uh, wildlife comeback this rewilding of the landscape to happen uh, in the in the Greater Coa Valley, and to achieve so, uh, regarding the the conditions that we have, we have to have a strategy, and basically that strategy has to touch a lot of different layers. So these layers are both, of course, ecology, wildlife, nature, and natural processes, but also people, sociology, economy, uh, where are the ups and downs. Uh, the strength and, and the weaknesses of this economy in, in such a region, and also the cultural aspect of the of the landscape. So these are many different things going on regarding each of the layers. I think we can go through a few of them. And what we're trying to do basically is to make sure that this grand region is suitable for wildlife to move through. Again, the, the, the idea of flowing and the passage and the migration is very key for what we do in the COA or just because that's been what the COA stands for 
in, 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 in thousands of years. So if you if you look back what happened here to to all the changes in this landscape, it always has to do something with coming and going, passing through, moving, migrating, both human and wildlife. So what we want to do is to create a corridor for wildlife that connects a lot of different uh, uh, nature protected areas with different habitats and different wildlife populations to move through and to be connected uh, and to allow that to to make sure that nature values thrive uh, because of that. So how to do that? That's that's another uh, question. I used to summarize that we try to take advantage of the opportunities there are, uh, while at the same time we try to uh, withhold and, and reduce some of the threats. So if you work on uh, maximizing the opportunity while reducing the threat, that's where we change the balance towards allowing nature to come back. And that's the, the basis of the, the rewilding strategy for the Greater Coa Valley. Oh, so cool. And for context, is the Coa Valley determined as one of the top priority nature areas? I guess just for, I've unfortunately have never traveled to Portugal. So I guess just for my understanding, why was the Coa Valley specifically chosen? You said that you, you you did mention all of these important, you know, historical reasons, and it is a great corridor. But is there another area in Portugal that also was a top candidate, or was this determined to be the most important that needed rewilded first, and then you could start moving into the other areas? Yeah. So it's it wasn't the top. If if you if you if you think about it from a uh, distant perspective, uh, that wouldn't be the top priority. And because first, it's a very not so known region of the country, even for the people of the country, it wouldn't be on the top priorities for for tourists. It isn't either internal or uh, international. Uh, it wasn't classified as a as a, a natural area. Most of the the knowledge they know about the Kua Valley is about the Paleolithic engravings. So. Besides being one part, an important part, a significant part of the history of this place, as not the whole region, and um, and so knowledge about the region, classification or protection of the region, and even the opportunity to do something was not on the top priorities. But if you sum everything together and you kind of connect the dots of what it is, opportunities, time, space and the, the chances of making something really relevant. I think you sum all this together, the Coa Valley then stands out clearly. For it has this long history depicted on engravings that show uh, fauna, megafauna that move through this place. It has been through centuries and through the Middle Ages, a war zone between Portugal and Spain. So the, the density of uh, population and activity was quite low for centuries uh, because the two countries were disputing it and it has been changing uh, hands uh, several times during the Middle Ages. Then when it was finally settled as a border, the landscape itself in terms of climate conditions, soil fertility and precipitation, it's so low that honestly, as a development basis for agriculture or other kind of development has been impaired because of that. There was These are marginal lands. It's a huge, big area of marginal land. Only very few pockets at its edge, both south or north, that has a little bit of interest on the farming development perspective. But as a whole, it's limited. And at the same time, 
because of the, the social dynamic of the past few decades, it has been reducing the, the density of population quite significantly, its activity as well. And nature came back has been evident, even though there was not much information about it, as because it wasn't classified, it was not a priority, uh, it wasn't monitored enough to know that the wildlife is actually coming back here for decades now. So all of that together make it a really good opportunity to showcase what rewilding can be. And that, that's the difference that rewilding has set up to do. It's not about talking about the big national parks and the, the most known uh, wilderness areas. No, it's about taking whatever is available and make it better for wildlife, for nature to come back, for people who appreciate nature to be able to, to see change happening, to come and visit, to know. So all of that was in the Greater Coa Valley at the potential level, but it wasn't really worked on to be a, a destination for, for nature for culture and, and all alike put together. And that's something that we set out to do, to combine all of these strengths and, and make sure that the weaknesses and the threats were at least reduced away so that nature can come back and rewilding happens. That makes total sense. Okay, so it almost seems... The word that kept coming into my mind as you're talking, it almost is like a pilot project of what can be done. Like if we put all the resources, we have a great strategy, look what we can do, especially with all of these different factors, which we'll start to get into now when you start to consider them. Yeah, because if anything, it's almost easier when you are restoring or rewilding a national park or something like that. The A lot of the factors that you are currently encountering don't exist because people have already been moved out. Wildlife probably is already thriving there. There's probably already been research done. So yeah, if anything, you have a much harder project, which could lead to much bigger outcomes for the long term. So let's get into that. You mentioned that one of your goals is to change the balance on the threats and the possible, you know, good outcomes that could come of that. So what are the top threats? What What is the Coa Valley or maybe in general uh, Portugal's wild natural areas are facing? Yeah. So one, one, uh, uh, one of the biggest threats that Portugal being worldwide known about it is the fire. Fire frequency and fire intensity so fire is a natural phenomenon no no doubt about that it's something that uh, ecosystems evolve with they know how to handle it they know how to respond and they even have strategies that benefit from the fact that fire happened happened that's fine and all of this landscape clearly has been adapted and evolved with the presence of fire but it has never faced the frequency and intensity of fire as we're now witnessing for the past four decades at least so what happens there's way too high unnatural frequency of ignition so starting a fire happened too frequently and these are mostly 90 something percent human caused according to official statistics 50 percent accidental but 50 percent intentional so that's so that that's a, a huge pressure on these ecosystems to constantly being recovering from damage caused by fire. So the frequency is way too high. And then the intensity, because natural fires usually uh, occur in a specific uh, season, and that's the, the storm rolling season. When the storms roll in from the Atlantic and they come 
bursting with with lightning through through the landscape the first few uh actually start natural fires and that's fine but that happens after summer early fall first rain seasons so the impact of the intensity is much lower than what we're witnessing here at the beginning and peak of summer having a huge frequency of ignitions and that starts fires that when they spread they are uncontrollable and their intensity is is a nightmare it's, it's, it is impossible to deal with it it just scorch everything through through its passage and then and, and so this is this is a big threat so one of our strategies is to reduce that threat by reduce the number of ignitions and reduce the intensity of which the ignitions might happen to 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 achieve so how how we do that we do that on a very active uh, way and a more passive way in parallel so we have a, a, a vigilance team so rangers that have a year-round activity and then during summer most of their dedication is actually on fire vigilance so they set out to do vigilance uh, of the landscape at specific periods of the day and specific periods over the summer where the peak of frequencies uh, happened so they, they are setting out their eyes and then they cooperated with huge extended network of people who are either volunteering to help in the vigilance or are people in the in the local communities villages and towns that um, have information are in, in straight contact with these rangers to give early warnings and then they are in contact directly with the official firefighting capabilities so firefighters and, and civil protection and the police um, are in direct contact with our rangers. So these our rangers are kind of a pivotal hubs of information for early warnings and the passage of these early warnings to to the official uh, combat forces. And then on the on, at ground level, when whenever there is a, an event, these rangers has been the year round traveling through the the landscape. They know a lot of about the landscape, so they know all the tracks, the dirt tracks, all the accesses, all the water points, all the way, everything that you need to know when you're facing combat. And sometimes it is clear that the firefighters or the civil protection they don't have that information. So having these rangers on site to help them to access, to get to a water point, to turn back if needed quickly and, and to accept, it's, it's crucial for the combat forces to happen. But I always say this, our vigilance team is designed to fail. Only because in Portugal, the only news that happens is when everything is burning. So if we avoid that, we won't be news anywhere, but the, 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 the impact of their work is great because what they're doing is to avoid this summer seasonal uh, news of uh, desperation in front of the fire with people running and uh, houses being uh, burned. That, that, that's what's sensational. What we're trying to do is to avoid that sensational by making sure that doesn't happen. And when it does happen, we have the capability to help to, to reduce the expansion and intensity of the fire. So that's one very active way to reduce it. On the other hand, the remaining time of the year, what we are trying to, to, to promote is that natural processes actually act as a, a resilience force to avoid the damage caused by intense fires. And that happens by processes that are natural, happening in natural uh, ways, which are mostly grazing. So grazers and browsers especially the big ones, heavy body grazers, what do they do is they consume the fine matter uh, 
So the biomass that grows in spring, so the grasses and new shoots of trees and shrubs that are very palatable, those are the ones that they eat. So they reduce that biomass by consuming that biomass, transforming it into ready-made carbon to be absorbed by, by soil through their, their, their scats. And while doing that on uh, every day, every hour during the whole year, we're reducing the, the accumulation of fuel in the landscape that even on a case of having a fire that's not available to burn. So that reduces the, the intensity. So combining the two approaches, we're trying to reduce the threat of fire as a, a whole by reducing the frequency of fire with active vigilance and uh, helping the combat forces and at the same time reducing the fuel that accumulates through the consumption of biomass, through the natural processes, which are the large grazers. And we're doing that by rewilding domestic uh, animals. So we brought what used to be a domestic breed of horse, Portuguese breed of horse, that has a lot of primitive uh, traits back into the in, in a wild uh, status, so to allow it to be free and to act as a grazer. And at the same time, we do the same with um, with cattle. So we brought this newly developed breed, the Taurus, to replace the, the role of the Auroch. So we brought these two, but we need more. We need more. We need the species of deer, the ibex, the, the beaver, and the number, the high numbers of rabbits, the, in, in big numbers of rabbits is, a, is a, a big grazer as well. And we need to increase that bioabundance so that the abundance of, of grazers in numbers that are capable of consuming the biomass in order to reduce the risk of accumulating fuel for a future event of fire. So that's something that we're working on. We started with horses and, and the taurus, which are easier. We're trying to improve the conditions so that deer can come back and increase their numbers. We've been asking for a long time to allow us to, to reintroduce the ibex and the beaver. And we're forcing that because it's by joining all these elements back into a complete ecosystem that will allow for the processes that these animals uh, play in the ecosystem to have results. And this is only the needed to be done now because for the past two or three centuries, what we have is this landscape being grazed to the bone by domestic animals. And as these have been decreasing steadily over the past few decades. They haven't been replaced by uh, uh, the, the same kind of um, process by wild herbivores. And that's what we're doing on a more passive uh, way to address the, the fire as a threat. Wow, I have so many questions. I wanna stick first though on the native species part. So do you think would it be possible for the natural grazers to come back on their own through corridors? Or do you think it's going to require human intervention to bring the species back? And if so, where do you source those animals? Are, are they bred in captivity or would they come from like a national park or what, how would that work? And is there a timeline when you think that maybe in the next five years we hope to have Ibex back or is that too, we're not even close to that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So many, so many uh, different answers to that because uh, honestly, yeah. there's, we have to look at each uh, in, in specific. So 
uh, grazers as wild horses or t- aurochs, they won't come back. They were extinct, so they're never coming back. We don't have that. We, have, we can't source them back, basically. So for that, we use proxies. And the proxies that we've been using is this Suraya, uh, the old primitive breed of horses, and the Taurus, the new replacement for aurochs. That's done. We're starting it. We, we have a few herds now. So what we want to do is now enlarge their range to allow them to actually cover more land and increase their numbers. So that's one. On another, some that are not extinct that might come back, such as deer, roe deer and red deer and uh, even fallow deer, they are uh, close by or in very low numbers. So what we need to do is to actually work on the connectivity of small corridor where to these animals can reach new areas and thrive. There's plenty of habitat, but there's not sometimes the the, ne- the necessary connectivity, fine connectivity to allow these um, deer species to come back. But they have been coming back. So roe deer has grown in numbers. We w- we're witnessing this. Red deer finally has reached the, the, the greater Coa Valley area and more and more we are witnessing their comeback. So what we need to make sure now is that these first few uh, pioneers into the landscape has have the chance to breed and to thrive and grow in numbers. So that's another one. But there are some species that you can't do much besides actually actively bringing them back. And that's the case for ibex and that's the case for beaver. And these two uh, will have to be uh, brought back. And um, we've been trying to uh, uh, having the licensing, the permitting, and all the process cleared up to be able to bring those back. Uh, if you ask me what time it will take to make sure that this will be back. So for the beaver, I'm pretty keen to see the expansion, the expansion of the more close-by population at the edge of the border between Portugal and Spain uh, that is not too far from, from the COA in the next five, ten years, it will be reaching this and it will come back. So naturally, from uh, existing population, it will it will expand and probably uh, start to colonize the, the, the area of the, the Kua River and tributary. So that may be. And for the Ibex, I mean, we're, go- we're going to be very persistent and we're going to pressure uh, to allow the return of Ibex to, to this landscape. And we will have to source it from existing populations in Iberia, both in Portugal and Spain, there are existing population with good numbers where we could uh, source some of the animals and, and bring back. So it's a matter of the national authorities um, allow us to have the permit to, to do so. And we want to do it on a controlled and, 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 and clear way so that to go through all the steps needed for a, a reintroduction. But I'm we and we've done that work already at some at some extent uh, and i think for that reason i think it's possible in the next five years let's say hopefully we will have the permit to bring the first back awesome and i'm i'm going to come back to beavers in a second because that's a whole other topic that's very important that i want to dive into but first i would like to just chat about landscape restoration what about the natural vegetation? Is it the wild vegetation that it used to be? Because, you know, you said that it was grazed all the way down. And, and I've come to learn that it's common then for sometimes invasive species to come back in or having other issues about that. Well, how, 
what are you seeing? Are your natural vegetation coming back on their own or are you having to do some uh, restoration intervention? What about that part? Yeah, that's very, that's uh, that's uh, super important because uh, um, it always goes hand in hand. As I said, they co-evolve both the, the forest composition and the the, the inhabitant wildlife inhabitants of the forest. They co-evolve together, and, and, and then, so it's not just bringing back the the, the big grazers. It's also making sure that they are uh, meeting uh, the the conditions to allow for the the uh, vegetation succession to happen. What we see here, it has been highly transformed the whole landscape for multiple reasons. And what we see now is that wherever it's allowed, the natural vegetation comes back. So seeds aren't too far for for shrub and, 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 and trees uh, to find their way in, but is limited. So we don't have the whole complete range of species that could be because some their seed sources uh, or seed populations are too tiny. And they lack some of the processes to allow them to spread. For instance, um, tree-bearing species uh, of trees, uh, fruit-bearing species, I mean, and so trees that produce fruit, they usually uh, need a vector uh, to spread their seeds. If it's a small fruit, birds do that perfectly. They eat the fruit, they'll drop it somewhere, the seed will spread. But if it's a big fruit, we're talking about an apple or pear, or a service tree or a strawberry tree, which have like a much larger uh, fruit, uh, uh, birds have a limited capacity to spread the seed. They might be eating the, the fruit, but they're not consuming the seed, so they're not spreading it away. So one of the things that we are doing is to allow for the natural dispersion of these seeds by the large grazer. So we're giving these fruits to the horses and to the, and to the taurus, to be digested, go through their uh, digestive system, prepare the seeds, drop it with some nutrients on the manure and allow it to grow. And that's one. And in some cases, we're even planting trees, which is uh, sometimes a, uh, uh, not what you expect from the rewilding uh, initiative. But wherever there is a chance where we can uh, set out these plantation, high density plantations of uh, species uh, that are missing in the diversity of the vegetation surrounding. We we're creating this small uh, woodland with lots of different uh, uh, species that will attract wildlife to go there, feed on the fruits or seeds or whatever, and carry them away. So that's spreading. What we're witnessing is that we are the first successions of, of, of um, vegetation recovery because there has been uh, start from ground zero, there has been uh, a lot of fire frequency. So every time there's a fire, the succession come back, comes back a few uh, degrees. So what we're witnessing is that we're at the first level of succession. So the, the, the natural cover nowadays is open woodland dominated by oaks. Uh, in the arid, the more arid parts, it's, it's dominated by evergreen oaks. In the more uh, rainy parts, by um, Pyrenean oak which is the typical oak from, from the region, or Virginia oak. So it's mostly oak species that cover the land. What we're missing is that those, those oaks grow uh, old, deposit a lot of uh, soil humus that allow for other species that require more soil composition to, to thrive. And these are the service tree and the lime tree and the apple, pear, and, and the strawberry tree, all of that bears fruit 
there's other type of biomes for many different uh, biodiversity from bacteria to, to invertebrates to bird and mammal. All of that is still missing, and that's what we're pushing for. And we're pushing for in different ways, either through planting, spreading seed, giving the seed to grazers, and first of all, and most of all, allow for time for the secession to happen. That That's critical. If we allow for secession to happen, that means lower intensities of fire and lower frequencies of fire and no harvesting or uh, a blind harvesting of firewood and uh, clear cuts. If we allow that to happen, I'm sure with time, of course, it can be accelerated through this action, but with time, succession will happen. So it, make, it's, it makes the forest more complex and more diverse. And that's something that we are uh, keen to do. So a, a clear representation of that is going to be the, the expression of the these fruit-bearing trees, big fruit-bearing trees spreading from their core areas where they are still kind of limited to into the wider region. And we're, we're, we're seeing that happening. So it, helping that to happen, but also monitoring that is happening, making sure that is not coming back in succession once again. Yes. Awesome. Okay, great. That's fantastic to hear. And another layer to all of this, like you said, is layers. And I have another layer to ask about, and that is our apex predators. So no ecosystem can be complete if the, you know, the top or apex predator, whatever you want to call it, is they are not there. They have to be there if it's to be a full circle ecosystem. So what about that? I know Iberian wolves are a thing there. I was reading all about your website and I know we chatted last time about wolf restoration. So let's talk about that a little more in the carnivore aspect of this. I'm sure not just wolves were supposed to be on the landscape. There's always small cats and other things, maybe a jackal type species or something. So what about carnivore restoration? Is that possible yet? And if so, what have you done? Or if not, what is going to be done? And is there a timeline on that in any way? Yeah, completely. So we, we, we covered the, the cores and the connectivity, but now we need to cover uh, carnivores because uh, the three C's of rewilding, it's clear that that's a, a very uh, important topic. And so the big predators of this landscape uh, nowadays are the Iberian wolf that is still present in very low numbers. And the second, it's the Iberian lynx that has uh, disappeared from the area, which was the last population in Portugal back in the 90s. So what we're doing first on the wolf, what we're doing is to promote corridors of coexistence. So the population south of the Douro, the southern edge of the, of the Iberian wolf population is first very highly fragmented and uh, very low in numbers. So that means that their gene pool and diversity is decreasing. So that makes their viability as a population going down. I mean, like the viability is not uh, achieved. So what we're doing is try to achieve the viability of population by allowing connectivity in between packs and income flux of new genes from the surrounding population. And to do so, we, we work both ways again. So on one way, on a very active type of work, is to make sure that human-wildlife conflict regarding wolf is reduced. Because usually what happens is whenever there is a, a conflict, there will be persecution. And with persecution, we, we, we lose number of 
and individuals and losing number of individuals in a, such a fragmented and disconnected population uh, it's a it's a big problem to address and we're doing so by actively providing preventive measures to livestock uh, uh, breeders uh, that has to leave and breathe their livestock in, in wolf areas um, by providing um, guarding dogs so the use of guarding dogs uh, with all sorts of livestock and that's something that we uh, change in the perception of uh, livestock breeders that guarding dogs are only for small uh, livestock such as goats and, and, and sheep and it's not. We're now having uh, guarding dogs with, with cattle, guarding dogs with donkeys, guarding dogs with horses and that's key. And we do that by providing the animals, so the, the, the dogs, and that we take from um, guarding dog breeders from the region and that have lineages of guarding dogs that we know are good to, to play that role. So we take those and we offer them to, to livestock breeders, shepherds and uh, livestock breeders, and we help them to include or to make sure that the inclusion of the guarding dog in the, in the herds is made properly. And we have a, a, a veterinary team, uh, two vets that help on that process in a period of one year. For one year, we help on that integration and we support both all the sanitation, vaccination, you know, everything that you have to, to do with a, with a dog. So we give the dog, we do the sanitation, we do, and we make sure that we uh, follow for one year the integration of the dog into the herd. Plus, during that year, we support with some food so that we reduce the, the cost of the, of the integration of these dogs for these shepherds. After one year, we keep the relationship. We can't support any longer, but usually uh, after one year, the shepherd is happy about the, the the work of the of the dog and it feels a part of the family so it's it's truly integrated and that's key that's very key it's not just about giving away dogs randomly it's the, the key is not the giving is actually the, the the work done throughout that year where we constantly in contact making sure everything is in place and that that's the key so that's one the second we also provide with the uh, fancies both mobile or fixed fences, uh, both uh, iron uh, type or, you know, like the, the typical uh, fixed fences or electric. And we do that in cooperation with, with uh, the livestock breeders according to their management uh, routine. So if some fences are useful for one kind of uh, management, others are for a different kind. So it depends really on the, on the, the way the, the, the livestock manages his, uh, his uh, herds. And um, that's also been quite successful. We have lots of uh, uh, people supported with those measures, both the guarding dogs and the fences. And the one thing that I think it's very clear is that for this community of livestock breeders, there is a point where they can reach to ask for help. And that's been us mostly because their experience has been that there is a compensation system for wolf damage that is run by the, the state officials, but it's run so poorly that people are giving up on asking for compensation. First, because it's low payment, takes ages, is very bureaucratic. Nowadays, you have to go online to a, a portal and to fill up these forms. And I mean, a shepherd doesn't have the time for that. So it makes it so hard to actually uh, be paid back for an attack that people are just giving up. And when they give up, on being reimbursed for their uh, loss, they will take revenge. And that was when persecution happens, either through direct persecution, poisoning events, 
fire, whatever. It's it's. So what we're doing is to prevent that, trying to reduce the conflict, promote the coexistence, because there will always be wolves in the area. There will always be uh, a livestock. So we need to make sure that for wolf is really difficult to prey on the mastiffs. On the other hand, we do it a more passive approach, which is to increase the number of their wild prey. And that's another key aspect. Because if, you, if we're focusing on making so hard the life of a wolf to prey on the mastic, we have to allow it to find easier prey on the, on the wild. And that's what we're keen to do. So increasing the number of uh, roe deer, allowing for the red deer to come back and increase their numbers and uh, making sure there's enough wild boar, but that they actually can feed or they have access to scavenging of whatever. It's important because these are feed uh, sources for wolf that they will prioritize if it's easier instead of going and trying to risk their lives hunting on domestic prey. So that's both. That, 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 that's the coexistence corridor uh, strategy that we're doing to promote the wolf. We know that they are present. We know that there are few um, packs in the region, very unstable, uh, very low numbers of uh, uh, breeding, very low success of the breeding of wolves. And uh, we want to change that. We want to make sure that they have more food, they have less impact and conflict with the with livestock breeders. They find their prey and they're, and they're able to migrate and to breathe in order to improve their gene pool so that makes sure that the viability of the whole population is increasing instead of what we've been witnessing for the past two decades, which has been a constant decline on both diversity and abundance of this top predator, which is key to keep a healthy system of grazers in check, make them move, take out the weak, control the, the, the outbreaks of disease. And this is super important. And to make sure that if we're working on increasing uh, grazers, we need to make sure there's a balance to it, which is the, the presence and effectiveness of a large predator, which is a wolf, especially, a well-structured and, and sustained uh, wolf pack. No disturbance, allowed to breed, allowed to prey on wild prey. That's when we have packs that are strong enough to keep wild grazers in check. And that's what we want to do. And uh, that this has been the, the strategy. The second, and to me it's a very dear uh, predator, is the lynx, the Iberian lynx. So the lynx has gone through this well-known historical bottleneck where we ended up with having fewer than 190-something individuals in the whole Iberia, and it's on the brink of extinction. The last population of lynx in Portugal actually uh, was in the in the upper Coa region, so in the in the area of the Malcata, where the spring of the Coa is, this huge air, hilly area. And that area in back in the late 80s, early 90s, was transformed deeply from a scrub open woodland into an intensive forest plantation. And that destroyed the, the habitat with it, the habitat for its prey, and also the, the occurrence of the first waves of disease uh, affecting the rabbit population. By 94, the last lynx uh, scat was found, and that's it. That's the last evidence that there was any lynx in that area, and it hasn't come back yet to settle in the greater Coa Valley. So for me, when we have a clear evidence that they have back to settle in the Coa, greater Coa Valley, that's like a lifetime achievement, I would say. 
So again, how to address the, the links? The same. Coexistence, corridors, habitat, and prey. That's simple. Uh, that's uh, our strategy. So nowadays we have dispersing individuals of links coming, passing through the COA. Actually, the COA as a corridor uh, has been seen to be one of the corridors that the links move through. So the ones that have been reintroduced in the south of the peninsula with the trackers have moved through the corridor through the COA, but they haven't settled. And the, the reason why they haven't settled, they're mostly males looking for new breeding grounds. So they're always looking for female territories. If they can't find it, they just keep moving on. And that's what we've been witnessing in this, uh, in this region. So they pass, they never settle. And the reason why they don't settle, these males, because they don't fight females. And the females don't settle because the females are very strict about what their territory has to look like. So it has to have good abundance of, of their favorite prey, which is rabbit. And for a breeding female lynx, it depends on 80% of their diet on rabbits because it's the easiest and is the best, most cost-effective energy uh, prey when they are milking their, their cubs. So they need to have good densities of, of rabbit. And nowadays we have poor densities of rabbit everywhere uh, because of multiple uh, factors. Um, okay, we can address them later. So that without the rabbit, they won't settle. Without settling, the, rabbit, the, the males won't come and settle as well. So they won't know any breeding. So what will we be doing on that? We want to make sure that there is a chance for the rabbit population to bounce back. So that the nowadays densities of rabbits, which are scarce, become at least a little more, more aban uh, abundant to allow for a future recolonization of, of lynxes female lynx is dispersing, naturally looking for suitable habitat to find it here. Uh, that's something that we're now uh, planning to start working on that. It's not so straightforward how to do that. It has been multiple attempts in, in Iberia and it's not clear what are the success factors, factors and the unsuccessful uh, factors. It's not clear. Uh, we're going to try to do the the good practices, whatever has been working out there, trying new ones as well to see if if we can uh, find a way to bounce this back. One of the things that we noticed as we brought back the big grazers, it has been a change in the in the abundance and distribution of the few existing rabbits in the areas that we brought the large grazers to, and um, and what happens is that. Large grazers also play a role of facilitation in, in ecosystems. So they are facilitators for other species. And what we witness is that we have a distribution of rabbit in the areas um, before we bring the grazers that were mostly scattered around the thick bushy areas. So where there's like thick bush, they would stay around because they have the bush as cover for aerial predators and also for land predators. So they, they would make use of the bush as a... A protection. Once we brought in the, the large grazers and they start gra uh, browsing and, and grazing around, opening these meadows with with more open ground, we saw that the rabbits moved their habitats from the thick bush to the open areas. So they were more present where large grazers usually are uh, roaming and, 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 and grazing. And one of the explanations for that, I think, might be their facilitation uh, uh, role, which is Grazers keep grazing, and that kicks off the response from the from grasses to produce new shoots. And these new shoots are usually more tender and more nutritious, and that's what rabbits look for. That's one one 
type of facilitation. The second is that large grazers usually are in, in herds, so they have social herds, few number of them, 10, 12 animals put together. They are organized and they, they tend to dislike the disturbance. So whenever there's a fox or a mangoes or a civet or whatever coming by, they will they will react to it and then and, and shoot it away. And that's a little bit of protection for the rabbit too. So they facilitate a little bit of the protection by their massive presence. And uh, we saw that response from the rabbits from moving the encroached bush, which, which was like an umbrella type of uh, uh, protection towards a more dynamic type of protection on, on the interaction with these large grazers. And uh, so that's something that we are keen to keep monitoring, see how that affects the population of uh, rabbits and how to help but that's not that's not the only and not a key solution that's one complement let's say because rabbits now face a situation so for they have very low numbers they are suffering from waves of different type of diseases wow. they are facing the lack of lack of top predators so they are facing a huge number of smaller predators that predate on this population and on top of that once over a year time they have managed to survive all of these three first threats so the, the, the disease the low numbers and then and the high numbers of small predators then by the end of the year when it's fall and winter they are hunted actively hunted so if you think on on a population ecology perspective it makes no sense if you have a small population that is still striving to survive but the ones that actually survive and gone through and, and, and maybe they are immune to the disease, maybe they know how to defend better from predators, uh, maybe they are able to breathe uh, because they have survived all these uh, uh, threats and in the end they get shot, you're actually reducing actively the capacity of the population to bounce back. So we need to have a, a, a combined approach. And this combined approach is either protect the existing wild population from the small predators, maybe large grazers can help on that. Uh, and that, that's one strategy. Making sure that, that there's habitat, water sources, pasture land available for them to, to feed and have nutritious feed to allow them for to, to breathe. And in the end, stop any hunting on, on that population. So we need to make sure that for a period of 10 years, 15 years, there's no hunting on that population neither hunting or poaching, which is also another threat that we're still facing in the Coa Valley. So that's been one of one of our uh, ideas on the strategy to, to address where there is still some population. On other areas where there's no population at all, we need to reinforce or reintroduce populations. Again, making sure that they don't face hunting pressure from predators and they're able to find shelter and food in good quantities to allow them to breathe. But I think one of the main keys here is going to be the presence of the top predator. Because the top predator, and these, these are both wolf and the, the Iberian lynx, they will make sure that the competition on predation is reduced. So they will drive away all the foxes and the badgers and the, that in their territories. And that's something that we need to make sure to have stable packs that have their territories cleared out of these smaller predators. A pack doesn't eat rabbits. A lone wolf 
yes, might do as a surviving strategy. But for a pack, that's very too small of a prey to feed a pack. So usually instead of hunting, they actually provide protection. The same for the for the lynx. The lynx will make sure that anything else is competing with them on their territories. So even if they consume a lot of rabbits uh, because they need to uh, for for their breeding, they are making sure that it's not other predators doing so. So they're actually actively decreasing the predation on the rabbits by predating alone on the rabbits. And that's going to be one of the main keys if we want to uh, make sure that the rabbits bounce back. So one of the ideas that we've been um, pursuing uh, together with Rewilding Spain, which has the same kind of uh, uh, scenario in their uh, landscape, is to request for experimental reintroductions of lynxes in areas where there's not enough uh, rabbits to sustain um, a lynx female to breed, but is enough to allow these lynx to play the top predator and actually umbrella type of protection role to the prey he wants to prey on later on. So that is something that we're working on to, to be able and have the license and permits to try out these strategies uh, with, uh, with large predators. So these are the two main, of course, these are all part of a wider uh, strategy. So it's not just about the predator itself, it's the whole circle of, of life uh, completion. And that includes the scavengers and the aerial scavengers in this region are really an important aspect of the dynamic of the ecosystem here, because we have a huge population of vultures uh, of different species present in this landscape. Oh, I just love how holistic this conversation has gotten. And it's such a big problem because here in the United States, you know, mesoprider release is a thing. Like when, you know, coyotes have gotten really big here. And I've had the pleasure of sitting down with Vajran, the veterinarian who helped found the Life Links Project, which is really cool. Um, Miha Krofel, also a big part of that. John Linnell, also a big part of that. And then also wolf experts like Valeria Salvatore. So it's... It's so cool to see all of these different conversations come together and yours feels almost like the, the culmination, the, the coming together of all of these different specialists and like you're doing all the things and it is absolutely incredible. And just the, oh, just the idea of bringing back the links, it's just, oh, this sounds so amazing. So I promised that I wanted to get back to beavers and I want to do that right now. And Maybe for those listening, I would love for you to explain a little further why beavers are so important and how they are directly related to one of the potential biggest conservation issues that we're going to face in the next decade or two, and that is water security and water availability. So beavers are one of the best nature-based solutions to this problem that is starting to be a big threat, as we're seeing a lot in the United States with all these big droughts that are happening, you know, water washout, all kinds of stuff. So I think I might have just given a whole bunch of spoilers, but why are beavers one of your top priorities for you in the Coa Valley? Yeah, well, basically because of everything you said that applies <laughs> yeah. to the landscape as well. I mean, it's clear if you if you look as you were mentioning the the southwest U.S., which is dry and and uh, and is facing the the new the new challenges of climate change and water security. One of one of the consequences of that, the same happens here. We're in Iberia, so Iberia is 
just the next door to the Sahara and Sahara is expanding. So you know that conditions will be much more arid uh, than we have uh, experienced so far. And uh, if, we, if we don't have solutions to make the, the landscape more resilient to that change, then the, 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 the end result is clear. What, what can happen is going to have to be more desert-like landscape with less vegetation cover with less water availability and and with it all uh, life will at least be uh, uh, decreased in terms of uh, number densities and distribution so beaver play a massive key role kind of solution for that because they are the ones building up the resilience of a landscape with the with a increased Frequency of drought, increased average temperature, increased number of peak of uh, heat uh, during summer. So all of that finds shelter in the shady, coolest areas of the landscape, and these are the water, the water lines. If these water lines don't, don't have beaver present, uh, they will run off to the sea as fast as they can. They just drain. And uh, the, what the beaver does is actually uh, making slowing down that drainage process. And to allow for the water to spread out out of the water lines into the surrounding areas, providing more habitat, providing more chances to, for that water to infiltrate, allowing to slow down the speed of the flow of the river, allow for the for the for the um, the mineral matter, so the the, the um, all those deposits to to settle down and, and not be eroded away to 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 the beaches. So all of that is creating new spaces for water to hydrate the landscape, increasing the the buffer zone of the of the waterways to their surroundings. Uh, I think it's in Germany where the the they have a law that says that within 20 meters of the of the waterway that's beaver land because that's what beaver will extend their influence to. In case of their even if even even if they're not present, it just as a as a, a, a prevention for 20 meters both ways, it's beaver land because that's going to be influenced. Nowadays, what we see is like these tiny, deep creeks and, and, and small streams that look like a drain. They have maybe a few uh, line of uh, trees on both sides, but besides that, it can be completely barren and, and arid. So the beaver plays a major role to change that situation, increasing the water table by constructing uh, the small uh, dams, allow for the water to spread so that this water, this water line, instead of having one line of trees, may have multiple trees growing uh, surrounding because they're food source. So the, the more they they chop down trees, the more coppice the trees are. So the more uh, shoots there, there there will be, providing more shade. Allowing for the cooler of cooling down of the water, and allowing for that water to stay to to stay longer to infiltrate the ground levels, and that is key. And in the Koa, we have this historical moment where the Greater Koa Valley only exists today because back in the 90s there was this massive public campaign against the construction of a mega hydropower. The reason why that was stopped was because of the of the findings of the archaeological uh, remains in the in the in the Coa Valley that would be submerged by by the waters of the of the dam. So there's no dam, and this has always been the answer to all the droughts: build more dams. And we all know that doesn't work if there's no 
rain to feed those dams, the bigger dams actually increase the evaporation, losing even more water. And what we see below the dam is even more drought than, than before. So it feels like a natural solution that contain the water in bulk. But in the end, it actually turns out as a, a um, counterintuitive uh, result, which is less water availability for the for the landscape as a whole. So we contain it at, at the dam, but everything besides it is completely dry. What the beaver does is actually to the opposite. By constructing very small but multiple dams, creating the enlargement of the water banks and creating even more uh, vegetation to, to cover, allows for the water to retain. And that's what in the COA, since we stopped the dam, the dam is uh, long gone and it's not going to be built. We need to bring that back. We need to bring the answer to the, 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 the non-construction of the dam, which is to allow for more dams to be built by the natural engineer that does so, which is the beaver. And I think that that is the, the opportunity that we have here to showcase what is a different approach, again, uh, to this landscape. Instead of lots of concrete to contain water, let's allow for the beaver to construct a lot of water reservoir that will benefit much larger areas of the landscape than a single uh, huge big dam would be for a very tiny part of the of the of the landscape with all its negative consequences but bringing back the beaver is of course key and again by constructing a a, a, a landscape or promoting a landscape that allows for lots of new water areas or humid areas to be created by the, the, the by beavers creates more uh, discontinuity in the landscape in case of fire. And we've seen that several times. It's been documented several times where beaver dams are present. It creates refuge for wildlife. Even in the case of fire, wildlife finds refuge inside these uh, humid areas created by, by beavers. Beavers create what is called the beaver meadows, which is old remains of um, of old dams, which are super rich in nutrients for grazers, invertebrates, pollinators, everything, and plus creates the discontinuity because this, if these humid areas are large enough, even if the fire comes, it will at least reduce the intensity to a point where it might just seize or be combated with a chance for the combat uh, forces to actually put it out. Because as it is now, what we have as in case of extreme fire events, it's impossible to stop them. It, and it's just biomass in the waiting to be consumed by, by fire. And, 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 and beavers act to stop that continuity of biomass accumulated and dried, ready to burn with humid, dense areas of different habitat that allow both for a barrier for progression and refuge for wildlife even escaping from a fire event. Yeah, and it, exactly. I'm so glad that you went through even the science behind this, like why this just makes sense, because there's a big movement now, just like you said, in the Western United States, which parts of it are very similar ecosystem. You know, a lot part of the region that I lived in uh, seems to with the Coa Valley. And there is a big push right now to bring back the beavers, like bring back the beavers and a lot of these things for the exact same reasons you just said. It's just, oh God, it's just so cool how the same solution could work on opposite sides of the world. So I love that you just went through all of that. And, and I would have just, just, just one, one compliment to that is that, I mean, 
in Portugal, at least here, we, 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 there's a national policy for the water lines um, that promote the recovery of water lines. And what oh. they're doing, yeah, and they're spending millions on it. And what they're doing is actually trying to mimic beavers. And it's super oh. expensive. Just bring back beavers. <laughs> yeah, super expensive. It doesn't reach as far as it could. And uh, it would be much cheaper to bring back the beaver and making sure that the beaver uh, has the, the conditions to stay and there's no uh, conflict or any kind of, it can promote coexistence with the beaver uh, in this area instead of spending millions that needs to be renewed. So every time, every four or five years, they have to do it all again. It's super expensive, it's inefficient, and as a it is not a nature-based solution. A nature-based solution would be just bring back the beaver. I love how sometimes we humans try to replace nature, like do what nature does instead of just letting nature do what it does. <laughs> yeah, like just bring back the beaver and then you will have the same pro, you know, like restorative features or, you know, restoration that beavers do <laughs> naturally. It's amazing. And so I think a big part of this that we haven't touched on yet is the sustainability of all of this. So if we're looking long term, making sure that this lasts well into the future, all this amazing restoration and rewilding work you're doing in the Coa Valley, making it, ensuring that is here for the long term is so important. And this comes to essentially the monetization of the Coa Valley. And I, I personally work in conservation tourism, you know, nature-based tourism myself. And I saw that through on your website, you have also started to take the ideas from nature-based tourism and ecotourism to essentially bring money to this area. So could you talk more about that? Why did you decide to start the center that you have? What is there? How did you go about that? And what are your hopes and ideas and dreams of this part of the Coa Valley, essentially making it worth something to people that not just live there, but like me, like I could essentially come and experience the amazingness of the Coa Valley because you've given me the opportunity to do that. So could you talk more about that? How the idea come to place? What do you have set up? What are the hopes for the future? Uh, yeah, all those things. Yeah, yeah. No, definitely. So, um, of course, that's, that's a big challenge always to think about what is going to be the long-term perspective to sustain what the efforts are now being done and how it will be carried on into the future. Now, can we make sure that this is not all in vain and after the first grants, people just change ideas and move away? That's not... So, I usually say that we're here for a generational purpose. So, well, this is not the, the one-off project type of uh, approach. We're uh, here for a long-term commitment. Uh, it's an, an initiative that just started. So um, we need to find a way to sustain that process. And of course, we've been addressing several and we are uh, on the process to, to make it sustainable, but we already started. So one of the things that we've done so far, and I think it's really important that we, we are trying to change the economic perspective for this landscape from extractive and subsidy dependence type of economy towards a different nature-based economy where companies and people that might set up their, their own enterprises look for nature as a, a non-extractive resource that they can monetize from, 
therefore making their living, make, 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 making sure that can stay in the landscape. So we we were witnessing several of these people that are willing, they like it, that they, they, they are enthusiastic. Um, what they were missing is there is a capacity and reach. So they're on their own, each one of them trying their own enterprise disconnected. So the first thing we noticed that because we did a landscape business uh, analysis, so economic analysis, and from there we did we created a, a landscape business plan. So knowing what are the economic strengths and, and weaknesses, and from that design a strategy to provide more uh, support to the ones that we find that are uh, relevant to the to the goals that we are proposing as a nature restoration initiative. And um, so from there, we noticed that there's all of these tourism uh, enterprise popping up throughout the landscape, but they weren't connected. So we created this Wildcoa network, uh, which is a, a network of now 40-something businesses, 48 or so, so 47 to 48 different businesses in the landscape that have accommodation, guiding, hides, transport, products, uh, several uh, enterprises, and combining them together in this network so that they can create products and services that take and, and take into account and work together with other business from the network to propose or to give to the market uh, new and more ambitious type of uh, products and services. So that the markets have now like a chance or the public that comes from those markets that have now a chance to come and use multiple services or products from the many companies in the in in the network. So this allows us to create packages that will attract people from outside market that usually each one of these companies wouldn't have the capability to uh, attract on their own. So someone might come to an accommodation and book with a guide that needs a transport and will consume some of the products from another company. But they will only have one acquisition, let's say, which is to book it. So they will book it and all these providers will serve their products or services put together. But for the client, it doesn't have to look out for all the different uh, companies to book it. And it can be either like a, a, a standardized uh, booking or a tailor-made. So we can do it both. And that will gather the different uh, aspects. And on their own, because they are giving more services and having more clients from the network on their own as an individual company, they uh, increase their portfolio and also their uh, standard as a company itself. So they actually attract more business and more clients themselves as well. So they're benefiting both both ways as companies. And we started with the, with the tourism uh, sector because uh, honestly, the easiest. So uh, if you think about nature restoration and, and, and uh, rewilding, what are people looking for to visit, to know, to come and see? And what is a more easily uh, nature-friendly uh, business? If tourism done well, it can't be that one. So we started that, but we're not looking to to uh, stay there, to keep on that. So now we're working a lot with bringing up producers. So producers who use uh, regenerative farming, organic farming that, that they produce with the uh, wild, uh, they source their uh, materials from the wild, they promote wilder areas. So all of those who are now producing that kind of product, we want to integrate more and more. So to create this critical mass of producers to provide the network and the different uh, tourism sector with those products and also to be able to reach out and sell uh, outside uh, more of the, those products, so increasing their value as companies within this landscape. 
to become companies that can face off what is more easily uh, done in this type of situation is just a construction with no feeling back. So that's something that we're now working on. And one of the one of the products that we're very proud of it's been the the, the that that comes in cooperation with a, with a, with a preventive measure for for wool. So we create this synergy between the sheep farmers in the region that have already adopted some of the preventive measures. And they weren't using the, the wool for anything. And we found a company that actually wanted wool to insert in their production uh, chain that is produced in Portugal. So they want to source their wool closer to the, to the production in Portugal. Uh, and that could benefit wildlife as well. So the, the sheep farmers that used to have as a cost the shearing of wool because the, the market price for wool is, is net zero and they still have to pay for someone to, to shear the, 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 the sheep. They had it as a cost. We turned that into an income, so profit. So basically wow. what we did, we got this company, they were looking to source their wool. We, we agreed with them that they would pay above average prices for the wool, plus they would pay for the shearing. So we took away the cost of shearing from the from the, these shepherds. We The company now hires the shearing for them. And then it pays on an average of six, six times the market prices for the wool. So no cost, more profit. As long as these people have good coexistent practices. So they have the preventive measures in place. And, and this is, has been key. So we're now waiting for the launch of the shoe that is going to be made with this wool by the end of this year. And that is something and that we are now on, 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 on the pipeline to, to, to launch. And we want to do the same with, with, with the cattle producers. So we want to find a way that we are uh, benefiting the, the cattle producers that have already, already changed their managing practices and adopted uh, preventive measures or might have integrated pioneering the integration of guarding dogs with, with cattle herds to benefit from this effort of living alongside with large predators so that their product can be um, sold with profit, with more profit for them. So that's something that we're now uh, looking at and how to 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 address it. Uh, but it's something. So we start with tourism. Once you go to this product, but we will reach service at a higher scale. So that's that's not, it's an evolving strategy, uh, and I think the Wildco network is a great achievement as a as a as a result. But it's not the end. So we need to increase this, and it all came back. It, it all was based on the first thing that we did, which is to look at the landscape as it is on economic terms. So, and from there, design a business plan that could change what were the downturns and the weaknesses into opportunities and actually providing benefits for people who are living and making their uh, livelihoods here in the presence of a rewilding landscape in the presence of wildlife predators and so so forth coming back, how will this benefit the people directly who live in this landscape, starting with tourism, moving to products, going for the ones that are even more difficult, such as livestock, and then in the end, services and otherwise that we will keep researching and, and, and developing. Wow, I'm, <laughs> I'm blown away. This entire conversation, Pedro. I don't know if there is something you haven't thought of, which is no, incredible. We talk about culture. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. That actually, yes. I have my my T-shirt today. Well, it's in Portuguese, oh. but it's but it says "Art come the art come back to the the wild." Basically, that's what. The, <gasps> I want that shirt. It's amazing. <laughs> so this is the this is the merch from our uh, ongoing Coa, the Corridor of Arts Land Art Festival. It's uh, it's happening this whole month of July. Uh, we're almost at the end. But it's, again, a, a cultural expression that aims to promote the greater Coa Valley as one big destination that is not just nature, that's not just archaeology and history, but it's new cultural and arts expression. So as a, a backstory, so the Coa has been known for its Paleolithic engravings, open-air Paleolithic engravings in the slabs of rock in the upper Coa Valley. Uh, that the were discovered uh, in the 90s and became the, the biggest open-air Paleolithic expression uh, in Europe. So petroglyphs that, ha- that are out there and depict wildlife, but had, had the, a history of uh, depiction of those uh, petroglyphs throughout the ages. So it started 33,000 years ago with the first engravings of aurochs and tarpon, the wild horse and ibex and deer. And it went all through the ages, the Neolithic, the Bronze Age, and Iron Age, until the last one that's officially engraving in the archaeological park dates back from 1954. So it comes to the 20th century. So we have like this wow. 33,000-year-old 30, tradition of expressing art through engraving in the landscape in the Kua. And we knew that. So since then... That became a park. It's well known. It's world known. It's a UNESCO site. It's it's unbelievable. It's an it's a must go uh, visitation spot when you're coming to the Coa. You have to have the experience of going uh, to see the engravings uh, live in the rocks, which is super impressive. And then we, we we start thinking how to create a cultural event that could have to that tradition, and at the same time be a flag to show the greater Coa Valley worldwide and to bring public to the to the Coa Valley to to know the area, to know these uh, wild Coa network uh, enterprises and companies, their services, and at the same time have some real expression. So we created this Coa, the Corridor of Arts event that has um, that was a call for land art pieces to be installed within the greater Coa Valley in the landscape made out of natural material to respect their natural decay and and natural uh, interaction with the surrounding environment. So from the 300 and something uh, applications we had, which was crazy to select, we finally ended up with six uh, artists to to do a residency uh, during the first uh, quarter of this year. So they came, they stayed, and they divide, they, they created their, their pieces together with the communities. And the community is quite variable what kind of community they were selecting and working on. Uh, it was interesting. There were people working with stonemasons or cork harvesters or even a therapeutical community to create pieces that there was then installed in the landscape and that will stay as landmarks for this landscape. And um, so they ended up, and then we have this one-month event uh, that's going to travel from town to town. There's five main towns in the Coa, um, and we're going to have each weekend one event happening in each of those five towns. So five weekends in a row, 
we're having more than 70 uh, artists uh, doing uh, music, theater, movies, performance during a week long in each of the towns and uh, attracting the people to come for the for the festival to see the art pieces to meet the artists to get involved to to buy products and services from the wild co network uh, producers who are on site on this on this event so all of these together putting this out and creating a lot of buzz so that people notice that the Coa Valley is a greater Coa Valley, a, a, a huge landscape, it's a co coherent landscape, has archaeology, history, uh, gastronomy, culture, nature, and now this contemporary expression of land art. I think all six pieces that were created are really amazing. Um, upcoming artists that uh, should be keep an eye on because they're going to, to build uh, really relevant pieces and I think the six pieces that we created for the Goa Arts Festival it's it's really interesting so from tomorrow uh, we will start the last of the of the events in the Vila Nova de Foscua the last town we moved from uh, south to the north so we went from Sabugal Almeida Figueira Castelo Rodrigo Pinhel and now finally Foscua and it has been incredible journey because it has involved a lot of people I'm super grateful for the team and the, the and the partners to put up this festival. And it's the first stone. It's going to be the first edition. We are going to repeat it. Uh, not clear exactly how, but we're after we're finished this festival, we're going to decide and probably something that we're going to be marking the cultural landscape of the of the country to have a happening uh, in the COA with this land art festival. How? Cool. That was going to be my next question. I'm like, please tell me you're doing this again because I'm literally so far away and I would have, I would have loved to have been a part of that, but it sounds like, okay, good for all of us listening. That's going to happen again. <laughs> so some, some version of it will happen again. Thank God, because I would love to somehow be a part of that because what you're doing is just absolutely incredible. Wow. So I did want to make a little bit of a switch here. I put out to the Rewildologist network, everyone, I asked for questions, if anyone had any questions for you, and I got a couple back. So some of the, this first one, I think you've already, you've, you've addressed it pretty well, but there is one part of this question that I'm very curious to hear your answer to. So it is from Sandra Swart uh, at wildpass uh, underscore on Twitter. Her question was, is there a particular Portuguese form of rewilding or are the general principles at play here? Yeah. So on, on the specifics of the, the restoration action in Portuguese, I wouldn't say we can't call it Portuguese. It, has, it would have to be Iberian. Because that's the biome that we work in, like the, the, the Great Iberia. Um, so the, the border is, is, is administrative and now cultural, but anyway, it's not natural. Uh, so there's not specific to, to, to Portugal, but to Iberia that is. So I, I mentioned it before. We have Iberian lynx, Iberian wolf. Uh, rabbits play a key role in this ecosystem. So there's something that in Central Europe is different. So, so that those are more specific type of things. And then there is a, a, a cultural aspect that I think in both in Portugal and Spain is similar, but it also in some other parts of Europe, which is the the, the notion of follow land. And I think um, when you when you leave nature to recover, 
its own uh, fertility of the soils by not doing nothing. And that's a, that's a, it, it, it is a principle of rewilding. And sometimes when I'm talking with people here in the, in the, on the ground, it's easier to say, oh, this is just follow them. It's just pose you. We're just giving a little bit of time. Maybe it's a long time pose you. It's not just one year or three years. It's like three decades. But it's the same principle. It's just let nature recover itself. And that's something that was embedded in, the, in, the, in agriculture and in farming practices in the past that fertilizers have been made obsolete. But if you think about it, without the fertilizer, people immediately understand what are, what are the goals of letting nature come back so that the fertility of the soil, species come back, water uh, availability is, is, is enhanced. And that's the notion of Pozio, follow land. It's not specific to Portugal or Iberia, but in here as the specificity of the landscape here has to be done in a certain way that in other areas is different. So it's easier for people to understand. And we use it very often to, to communicate our message or our approach. Oh, that's fantastic. Oh, the second part was, have you had any local breakthroughs that surprised you? Yeah, well, after five years of uh, the work on the ground, yes. I, I mentioned a few. So the adoption of uh, guarding dogs with, with cattle, that's, that's, it's completely new for not just the region, but the whole country. And, and, and it was surprising to see that some pioneers actually adopted it and show that it was possible. And that brought other people to join. So that, that to me, was a great big breakthrough. Um, they used, more recently, the Land Art Festival, which is a cultural event is providing a lot of opening contacts and, 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 and openness to other things that we might do because we're promoting this, we're attracting people, bringing new publics, new uh, interest uh, to this region. And then and people say, oh, yeah, these guys are taking a lot. It's not just nature. They also do arts and culture. So that that also was a, a, a more recent breakthrough. And I mean, that, there's more, but yeah. That's so cool. Yes. It's amazing when you go into this from like the science side, all about the nature and then uh, learn that culture and art is just as important and how you've been able to weave those in is just amazing. And I think that we will wrap up this amazing conversation with Hassan Bayan's question. And that is, how can we get more involved without speaking Portuguese? <laughs> No, it's possible. I and mean, we do have a lot of people, uh, some people coming from abroad to, to, to get involved. So I will say this, but one of the most important things if you want to help is to spread the word, to communicate, to interact, to ask questions and, and, and come and visit and uh, take your perceptions out there. I think it's, uh, it's uh, super important. Uh, then we have a few opportunities on volunteering in short or longer term. So we have like people who don't speak any uh, Portuguese volunteering for the fire surveillance. And it's something that you come to volunteer for a week or two doing some surveillance, but on the remaining time, you can enroll with the activities of the, the team. So helping out on monitoring or uh, restoration elsewhere. So uh, it's also a good and um, make use of our wild co network and uh, book your uh, visits here. Use our uh, partners who, who will, I'm sure, tailor a good visit for you. So I think there's always a chance. If you want to be 
more supportive in terms of helping with finance. We have a patron and we have uh, the patron working now. And then just look at our website. There's many other different opportunities to, to get involved and at us. Sounds fantastic. And as always, I have all relevant links in the show notes. And I will love to promote this amazing cultural experience that you have. And then, of course, all these opportunities to volunteer with you and visit. I actually just inform somebody of your nature tourism in like a Facebook group last week. They were like, I, I'm going to Europe and I want to visit a rewilding project. I'm like, oh, I have somebody. <laughs> Say hi to Pedro if you go. So I will also have all of those links, of course, of course. And Pedro, thank you for your time, your dedication to your home and making it a more wild, beautiful place. So again, thanks for sharing your story with me and everybody in the rewildology community. Yeah, well, thank you very much, Brooke, and uh, thank you for inviting and, and giving us the chance to show to your immense public what we're doing, raising awareness, and, and I have to, to thank for it and also thank for the team and partners here at Rewild in Portugal, which make this all happen. It's not, it's not just me, no single-handed, it's a lot of uh, dedicated and, and very competent and enthusiastic people that make this happen, uh, and I hope you and your listeners come to visit someday we're open please make use of our contacts to 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 visit and thanks again for for the chance to speak with you thank you for joining me on this wild adventure today i hope you've been inspired by the incredible stories insights and knowledge shared in this episode to learn more about what you heard be sure to check out the show notes at rewildology.com if you enjoyed today's conversation and want to stay connected with the Rewildology community, hit that subscribe button and rate and review the show on your favorite podcast app. I read every comment left across the show's platforms and your feedback truly does mean the world to me. Also, please follow the show on your favorite social media app, join the Rewildologist Facebook group, and sign up for the weekly Rewildology newsletter. In the newsletter, I share recent episodes, the latest conservation news, opportunities from across the field, and updates from past guests. If you're feeling inspired and would like to make a financial contribution to the show, head on over to rewildology.com and donate directly to the show through PayPal or purchase a piece of swag to show off your Rewildology love. Remember, rewilding isn't just a concept, it's a call to action. Whether it's supporting a local conservation project, reducing your own impact, or simply sharing the knowledge you've gained today, you have the power to make a difference. A big thank you to the guests that come onto the show and share their knowledge with all of us, and to all of you, Rewildology listeners, for making the show everything it is today. This is Brooke signing off. Remember, together we will rewild the planet.